From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They're recruiting 1,000 Coloradans for a COVID-19 vaccine trial. How this particular vaccine works and understanding the timeline. Then, inside the mind of Steve Bannon, the former presidential strategist, a CU professor who studies the far right, conducted more than 20 hours of interviews with Bannon, who remains influential despite having been pushed out of the Trump administration. I'm a huge believer that we're a country with a border and a wall in a country that has a culture and a civilization and citizens and an Americanness to it all. These interviews inform the new book, War for Eternity. Then, it's a moment of reckoning for RTD that could reshape transportation in the region. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For a COVID-19 vaccine trial, Colorado researchers will recruit about 1,000 patients over the next couple of months. This is part of a nationwide study which will monitor these patients for a year to see if the vaccine works and is safe. Dr. Thomas Campbell specializes in infectious diseases at the CU School of Medicine and the University of Colorado Hospital. And doctor, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I appreciate your time. I feel like I I hear about a new vaccine trial for COVID-19 every day. What makes this one particularly interesting to you? Well, uh, this will be the first large-scale phase three vaccine trial in the U.S. And so, as you mentioned, we'll be one of many sites uh, across the country that will be enrolling patients into this study. Unpack that term phase three for us. What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, whenever uh, new vaccines or new drugs or new devices for medical purposes are developed, they are evaluated uh, in a series of phases to demonstrate both their safety and their efficacy. And does this mean that like mice have already been tested or something? (laughs) Oh, this is uh, way beyond mice. So phase one research starts with uh, humans, and those are the first in-human studies. And those uh, studies demonstrate the safety as well as uh, define what the uh, best doses might be. Phase two kind of expands a group of patients who are studied and uh, further refines the safety and uh, dosing. And then phase three is the final step. And phase three is a very large scale trial. And in the case of a vaccine trial like this, tens of thousands of patients uh, are enrolled to really uh, make sure that uh, the vaccine both works and is safe for people to use. That means then this has already showed some amount of promise. Tell me how this particular vaccine works. Yeah, so the purpose of this vaccine, and, and most vaccines for that matter, is to induce immunity through antibody responses. So antibodies are proteins that our body makes uh, to defend us against infections, uh, including viral infections like SARS-CoV-2. And that's the formal name for COVID-19. So does this mean actually injecting people with like a a version of this novel coronavirus? No, no, uh, no, that you cannot get a coronavirus infection from uh, this vaccine. The vaccine makes the body produce one of the virus proteins. There's a, the name coronavirus uh, comes from the observation that when you look at these viruses under an electron microscope, 
they look like a crown of thorns, and corona is Latin for crown. And those thorns are actually uh, what is called the virus spike protein. And that spike protein is how the virus enters cells. So the Mm. spike protein binds to other proteins on the surface of our cells, and then the virus can infect that cell after that binding step. And so the idea is to induce antibodies against that spike protein to keep it from entering cells and prevent the virus from infecting us. Dr. Campbell, you'll forgive my question after question from a layman's standpoint, but um, what is it exactly that is then producing those antibodies? Like, help us understand what's in the vaccine then. Yeah. So in in this strategy, the vaccine uh, uses a piece of genetic material called RNA. We all have lots and lots of RNA in our body. All of our cells have RNA. RNA is uh, how genetic information gets made into protein molecules. In this case, a very small piece of RNA that has the genetic uh, information for the virus spike protein is injected into muscle tissue, typically the shoulder. Once it's in the muscle cells, the muscle cells start making that virus protein using that small piece of RNA. Hmm. The virus protein is made in the muscle cells, and then the immune system can uh, see that and develop an immune response to it. So it's in some ways similar to just, say, the typical flu vaccine. But in the, in the flu vaccine, what's injected into muscle cells is the protein of the flu virus. Um, Let me um, just, there are lots of questions and limited time here. How promising do you think this approach is compared to the many other, you know, approaches that are racing for a vaccine? Yeah, so we don't know uh, how well this approach will work. The early phase studies, the phase, phase one and phase two studies do provide some promise that people who get this vaccine can make the intended antibodies. But what we don't know yet is whether those antibodies will actually be protective against uh, COVID-19 illness. And that's the purpose of this study to uh, find out. What's uh, very promising about this technology is that if it does work, then it's a technology that can be rapidly scaled to be able to produce large quantities of the vaccine. It would be easy to mass produce and then distribute quickly. Okay, that's that sounds promising for sure. The timeline here, you will recruit these thousand or so Coloradans for about two months. Participants will be monitored for at least a year. I know that you're going to start with the pool of patients already associated with UC Health, but what, what types of folks are you looking for? I mean, folks who are particularly vulnerable or of a certain age range or a real broad swath? Yeah, so um, we want to evaluate this vaccine in the people who are at greatest risk of developing COVID-19 illness. Okay. And so uh, we want to focus our recruitment on uh, people who are older, over the age of 65, people who have underlying medical conditions that uh, put them at risk for having bad COVID-19, so uh, chronic diseases like um, uh, diabetes, uh, obesity, chronic kidney disease, for instance. Uh, And then uh, we also want to recruit 
those people who, because of their circumstances, their employment or uh, where they happen to live, puts them at increased risk of being exposed to SARS-CoV-2 and getting infected with SARS-CoV-2. You so, said earlier that there's no chance that you would get COVID-19 from being a part of this trial, but there, there must be some risks. It's an untested vaccine. You're right. And we don't know uh, what all the uh, risks are. Data from the phase one and phase two studies suggest that uh, there is some risk of local reaction at the injection site, some pain and swelling. But we need to uh, evaluate in much larger group of patients over a much longer period of time to make sure that it is fully safe. In just the last few seconds, Dr. Campbell, you know, I think when when many of us consider a vaccine for COVID, we might picture one. Is it possible that the end result will be multiple vaccines that are approved and used? I fully expect that. As as many people may know, there are literally over 100 uh, candidate vaccines at this time. I expect that we'll have more than one uh, that will prove successful. I so appreciate your explaining this so clearly. That's Dr. Thomas Campbell. He's an infectious disease specialist at the CU School of Medicine and the University of Colorado Hospital. We talked about Colorado's role in a nationwide vaccine trial that is set to begin this summer. Governor Jared Polis says this should be the summer of no parties. Keep it tight. What I'm telling you is four friends, not a party of 80 people, right? It's really important that people get that message. Polis held back from introducing a statewide mask mandate Thursday. Instead, he called on people to take personal responsibility because individual choices have a ripple effect. If for some reason it's not enough to want to save your own life, if for some reason it's not enough to want to save the lives of members of your household or people you care about, Mask wearing is also a business issue and an economic issue. New numbers show the state hit an all-time high for the number of COVID-19 tests in one day, just over 9,300. The positivity rate went up for a third day in a row, the highest it's been since the end of May. And in the last week, Colorado has seen a 28 percent jump in hospitalizations for COVID-19 or those suspected of having it to a current total of 318 Despite all that, the governor says Colorado hospitals still have sufficient capacity to handle the new cases for now. Stay home when you can. Reduce your socializations a little bit. Wear masks more. And and hopefully, hopefully we can reverse this trend here before it gets so bad that larger changes in action are, are needed by people. Polis said about 60 percent of Coloradans are now under mask wearing requirements at a local level. That includes Boulder, Denver, Larimer and Summit counties. This week, the Tri-County Health Department voted to impose a mask mandate for Adams, Arapahoe and Douglas counties, but gave them the ability to opt out. Douglas County commissioners not only voted to opt out, they issued written notice of their intent to withdraw from Tri-County and create their own own public health department, saying that a mask mandate is not appropriate for Douglas County. All of this underscores why it's a slow process to reopen the state. Economic uh, Economists, rather, say recovery is still a long way off, even as more people go back to work. Here's CPR's Taylor Allen. Blake Linehan works in tourism in Aspen, at a small shop that sells and repairs bikes during the summer and ski equipment in the winter. I'm a person who really enjoys the outdoors. My free time is biking myself, hiking, camping, getting on the river in town. This is only his second week back to work. 
He was laid off in March and relied on unemployment for three months. He says it wasn't comfortable. I had some money saved. Definitely made a big difference. I'm not married. I don't have kids. So I'm only responsible for myself. He ended up moving out of town to cut costs. When he got asked to come back to work, he says he was ready. I don't like relying on unemployment. I was happy to get off of it because I think that there are people who are struggling more. Since he went back to work, things have been busy. He says the store has sold more than 150 bike rentals in a single day. According to the most recent figures, a little more than a quarter of the jobs lost in March and April in the arts, entertainment, and recreation sector came back. But Brian Lewandowski, an economist from the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder, isn't ready to be excited yet. I think that's kind of the low-hanging fruit. When if you go from being in lockdown, where many of our businesses just were shut down, to reopening, of course, you're going to get kind of this snap back. Lewandowski is more worried about what happens next. He says he still expects more bankruptcies and business owners struggling to turn a profit while the pandemic continues. I think that the next few months should see some slower job gains than what we've seen over the past two months. He doesn't expect the state economy to look like it used to for three years. And that's if there isn't another mass shutdown. Colorado's unemployment rate is a bit lower than the national average of 11% right now. Even before the pandemic, Colorado had some of the lowest rates of unemployment in the country. Colorado, I think, is performing a little bit better because of our industry mix, because of our professional and business services jobs. We have a high concentration of that activity, especially in the metropolitan front range. These are also the jobs that allow employees to work from home. Industries like recreation and food service are harder hit. They tend to pay less, and workers have to be there in person. Margaret Caffrey is a manager at a restaurant in Boulder. She was out of work for two months. She says she still grapples with going into work. Could we actually be staying home and taking better care of our community and the world by not having certain businesses open back up? But then the anxiety of also like, but we have to make this business sustainable because I work at a small restaurant. Her restaurant was approved for a paycheck protection loan, which is helping her pay her and her co-worker's salary. But business is not the same. They don't have as many customers. It's like a constant anxiety and a constant worry of, like, if we're going to make it and what that looks like. She has other options, but doesn't want to use them if she doesn't have to. I could teach English instead if I wanted to do that. But I don't know. I really love the restaurant industry and the service industry, so I don't really want to lose that. But I could if I needed to. She's starting to look at switching careers. But for now, she plans to stick it out as long as she can. I'm Taylor Allen, CPR News. Indeed, among the workers facing an uncertain future, teachers. Colorado's largest school districts have announced their plans to hold classes in person this fall. And it's raising a lot of questions about COVID-19 risks. So teachers, we want to hear what's on your mind as a new semester nears. Are you eager to get back to the classroom Are you worried about your health, struggling with lesson plans that fit a new normal? Leave us a voicemail. So call our main phone number and then use extension 480. Here's that number, 303-871-9191. Again, extension 480. So one more time, 303-871-9191, extension 480. Okay, after a quick break... Steve Bannon's War for Eternity. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
The majority of CPR's funding comes from individual donations. Because not everyone can give right now, your essential donation means CPR can be here for everyone in the state. It means that CPR reporters can continue to cover the news and emerging stories in Colorado, stories that impact all of us. And it means that CPR Classical and Indie 1023 can continue to fill your home with music. Preserve and protect all that you get from Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Donald Trump owes his presidency in part to a man he later had a falling out with, Steve Bannon, his former chief strategist. A lot of labels have been applied to the former Breitbart News executive, white supremacist, white nationalist, neo-Nazi. Well, our next guest wanted to better understand Bannon's worldview, how it helped catapult Trump into office, and what other powerful people around the world share this worldview. Benjamin Teitelbaum is an assistant professor at CU Boulder who specializes in the far right. For his new book, he spent a lot of time interviewing Steve Bannon, more than 20 hours of conversations over the course of a year and a half. Here is one of their exchanges in which Bannon lays out his views on borders and foreign wars. You know, it's this, it's this conflict we have in the United States and the conservative movement and others about, you know, we're considered and we're denounced by the Wall Street Journal's editorial page as the blood and soil wing yeah. of the Republican Party versus, and this is a very fundamental thing. I'm a huge believer that we're a country with a border and a wall and a country that has a culture and a civilization and citizens and an Americanness to it all, right? And that's a country. If that's called blood and soil, then so be it. But we're a country. We're a thing, yeah. right, with a people and a set of customs and traditions. We're not some idea. I hate that concept of America as an idea. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a heritage, Cato, yeah. that, and that gets us into all the spreading, you know, that gets us into all these wars yeah. with these people that want to walk around with this kind of, this, this, this airy-fairy idea of democracy and be jammed down the throats of people in Kabul, yeah. 16 years, at $2 trillion, 3,500 deaths, 15,000 wounded in $2 trillion. That's America the idea. Steve Bannon there speaking with Benjamin Teitelbaum of CU, whose new book is War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. And Ben, welcome to the program. A pleasure to be with you, Ryan. Your goal as an ethnographer was to understand Bannon's guiding philosophy, and you were able to identify it, a far-right philosophy that may not have many followers, but whose followers have proven enormously influential. More on that specific uh, way of thinking in a moment, but remind us of Bannon's past influence. What what role did he play in Trump's victory? So he he took over the Trump campaign at a time when it was floundering, when he when Trump seemed to be headed toward a, a catastrophic failure um, and loss against Hillary Clinton. And of course, it's very difficult to to pinpoint what a, a campaign manager does and, and quantify their their influence and impact on on the outcome. Uh, but his aggressive posture toward attacking the, uh, President Trump's critics and also his geographical focus, his belief that, in fact, Trump could win the upper Midwest and that that would be a nail in the coffin for Hillary Clinton's chances. Those are the sorts of things that he introduced into this into this campaign. And it, it also gave him a spot in the White House once Trump was elected and inaugurated. What they call the toppling of the blue wall there yes. in the upper Midwest. yes. Bannon saw that as an he, opportunity. He he did. It was it was 
quite interesting. After the election had taken place, Trump, who who eventually became very allergic to giving anyone else credit, of course, for his for his electoral victory, uh, was was quite forthright in saying to commentators and journalists that that Bannon knew essentially how the electoral map was going to look. He knew exactly what states were going going to turn. Although Wisconsin was a surprise. From the day President Trump moved into the White House, Bannon's influence on policy was enormous. Um, think back to that flurry of executive orders, so the so-called Muslim ban, a blow to the Affordable Care Act, building a wall. Bannon told you this was a technique to disorient the president's foes. Principal among them, you write, the media. Expound on that for us. Yes. So not just the content, if people can think back to 2017, not just the content of that flurry of executive orders that came out of the White House right after Trump came into office, but the technique itself of of attacking so many core principles of the president's opponents and critics uh, in such quick succession so that essentially the media would not be able to focus on any one change, any one initiative, if it, if it was the Muslim ban, uh, if it was, uh, you know, uh, rearranging the uh, uh, school education uh, pr- procedures in the United States. Right. I think he declared National School Choice Week that first week he was in office. Absolutely. This was, this was one of the executive orders. All of those, all of those initiatives came... Uh, so quickly. And the strategy was that, you know, if if the media were so overloaded with uh, with things to follow, if the president's foes were so enraged um, that they actually would not be able to focus on any any particular uh, any particular initiative and mount mount an effective resistance against it either. Bannon told you that specifically, because I can imagine people who voted for the president thinking, well, that's the president delivering immediately on what he told us he would deliver on. Sure, sure. But uh, it would be just as reasonable to think that after a contentious election, it would be wise to for a president to gradually introduce uh, their reforms so as not to arouse a lot of resistance. But this was the exact opposite technique. The title of your book partially answers this question, Bannon's far-right circle of global power brokers. Why write about a guy, though, who fell out of favor with the administration? I mean, the president famously called him Sloppy Steve. Why, why is still Steve Bannon still relevant? Well, my interest was not just about his contemporary relevance. This was also about, about correcting what I think uh, needs to be a new historical record of what ideas were actually in the White House. But in terms of his contemporary relevance, we see a number of things going on. He, he bounced out of the White House, had some catastrophic failures um, in Europe. But today, he is working uh, primarily against the, the Communist Party in China and doing so with, uh, to great effect, in fact. Hmm. And, and he also has a circle of, of, uh, of people that he consults with who have found themselves in positions of power inside the White House right now. The philosophy that you talk to him about in great li- at great length is something called traditionalism. Uh, and, and this connects Steve Bannon to some very powerful, influential thinkers around the world, in Russia, in Brazil. What are traditionalism's fundamental beliefs? I mean, I, I hear traditionalism and I think Ozzy and Harriet, you know. <laughs> yes. 
I, I, I really wish often that, that this philosophy had a different name because when we, <laughs> when we hear traditionalism, we think of something, something really quite different. The only clue we have that this is something special is that there's a capital T. So capital T traditionalism, it really isn't a political ideology. It's, it's more of a philosophical, spiritual school. Some people have called it a proto-religion even. And it's, uh, it's about trying to find what it believes are lost truths to the universe that used to belong to a, a true religion ages, millennia ago that have has since been lost to us and exists basically in fragments in certain religions around the world. So there's, there's an element of comparative religion in this. And, and bear with me. I know we, we no, will get I'm, to politics. I'm but. fascinated by this. I know that it's also very much in opposition to modernity in many yes. forms. Yes. What it it believes in some of the truths that it derives from this comparative study of religions, what it believes used to be true is uh, one of the things is that it, it sees history and time as moving in cycles as opposed to linearly. Uh, what that, that means in particular in this case is that traditionalists think that time moves from a golden age to a silver age to a bronze age to a dark age. And then after a cataclysmic event, back to a golden age again. It's and, this and cycle rebirth. of rebuilding and of destruction. Yes, yes. And this is something some Indo-European uh, religions, uh, you know, in Hinduism still today, most, most clearly, I think, and most f familiarly for most people, uh, says similar things. Um, and in addition to that, in addition to this concept of cyclic time, uh, traditionalism also tends to posit some sort of hierarchy in society. It says that when, when society was in its golden age, there was a hierarchy of castes, essentially, or human types. Um, initially, at the most basic level, those moved from a priest to a warrior to a merchant and to a slave caste, uh, the priests being the smallest numerically, the slaves being the largest. Um, again, this has allusions to the Hindu caste, uh, caste system that might be more familiar to some people. Um, so, and that opposes uh, spirituality and materialism. So, so hang on to that thought briefly. The other key part of this is that they believe that as time moves forward, that hierarchy declines, spirituality, the age of the priest disappears, and we gradually move more and more toward materialism, an age of merchants or an age of slaves, an age of goods and an age of the body. Um, and in that dark age, in the age where hierarchy is gone, spirituality is missing, materialism has taken over, uh, things are also going to be backwards, that we're going to have false prophets, priests will actually be merchants and slaves in disguise. And this age that I'm talking about, this dark age in his mind, this is modernity. This is the age that we're living in. This is something that unites a lot of these, these traditionalists who come at it from the political right as they see... Um, our age of democracy slash communism as both being mass political movements that are materialistic as well. I mean, it's fascinating then that Steve Bannon, who believes in this capital T traditionalism, hitches his wagon to, in a way, the ultimate salesman. Yes. Mercantilist. Absolutely. A, a sort of archetype. Uh, the aesthetics of Trump are, are, are really pointing in the direction, yes, of, of mercantilism. There's, there's an interesting story about that. One of the early right-wing traditionalists, a man named Julius Avila, who who's Steve Bannon and I spoke a lot about, um, he was very enthusiastic about Mussolini and Hitler because uh, he thought that they it was their aesthetics that pointed to a sort of warrior ideal. And it meant that this time cycle 
um, was actually pushing itself backward. He was living in Italy at a time when he thought Italy was moving toward communism or democracy. Suddenly warriors appear and he thinks, oh, this we're, we're actually moving from a Bronze Age back to a silver. Um, the modality of, of a warrior is here. And in Steve's case, we never actually talked about this, but it, I did note that there's some precedence with someone like that uh, looking at an archetype like Trump and saying, huh, something cosmic is going on here. We're, huh. we're living in an age of democracy and mass participation, uh, but we might be moving backwards from a dark age to a bronze, let's say. You, I think, earlier referred to this as almost a proto-religion. Yes. Uh, but let's talk about its intersection with politics. You write in the book, the book is War for Eternity, when traditionalism has made inroads into politics, it has almost always done so in or near the company of race ideologues and anti-Semites. Why is that? At, at the very, very base, we'd have to say that that concept of cyclic time, we should note that it is opposed to the idea of progress. There's no such thing as progress in, in this way of thinking. The, the best the way to improve your society is simply to return to its past glory. So don't you know, don't be talking to these people about, uh, let's say, emancipation uh, of, of a brighter future. That's not how they think. So we already know broadly it's on the political right. Um, but the, the Italian figure I just mentioned, Julius Evola, one thing that he added to that caste hierarchy uh, was not just a sort of gender hierarchy to say that, that priests were also, and a priestly ideal is essentially masculinist, mm. but he also said that they were essentially Aryan that they were a racial group um, and that a more spiritual identity, a more, a more spiritual uh, character to, to society is the prerogative of Aryans. So the legacy of, of Evola is, is one that leads straight into race ideological schools. And opposite the Aryan uh, uh, ideal, especially in his time, was the Semitic um, slash non-Aryan. So we would we would have other uh, non-whites to kind of use uh, uh, an updated term. Benjamin Teitelbaum, I want to be very careful about uh, who we ascribe traditionalism to. So Steve Bannon, uh, no doubt, is familiar with it, identifies with it. Can we assume that the Trump administration is traditionalist, capital T, or not? Certainly not. Um, it's one one challenge that I've had in writing this book and, and what can sometimes be difficult to understand if we're accustomed to following politics is that uh, Bannon has not really been propagating this. He's not been propagandizing with it. He hasn't been reaching out to new people and trying to convince them to, you know, to read uh, to read traditionalism, this particular type of right wing traditionalism, even within this movement, there's their divisions. Um and part of that is because of the fatalism and what I just talked to you about, about the time cycle, that um, he doesn't really need to do anything. He believes that a lot of these changes are predestined. We were predestined to move uh, in a certain direction in world history, and you simply have to wait it out. Um, in particular, he thinks that chaos and destruction is the means by which uh, you will actually arrive at a rebirth and a rejuvenation of society back to that golden age. Um, so if, if he sees that we are in a moment of destruction, a moment towards uh, materialism, mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand if he just sees the, the Trump administration and his involvement in it as hastening that? Yes. Or as the savior to that? Yes. It was, al although a predestined sort of, yeah. it, you know, to be expected. 
essentially. I mean, he, you know, that you have this figure who comes along who had a capacity for, if, if, if Steve Bannon is in polite company, he'll say disruption. When he was well into some of our interviews, he would start to say destruction, that Trump could come in and destroy this, uh, this edifice in Washington and in its place, uh, you know, new collectivities would be built up from the ruins. That's, that is how we looked at, at Trump. How does traditionalism connect to Russia, to Brazil, and to some of the leaders there, Putin so one, among them? One of the shocking things that I discovered when researching this this book was not just that Steve Bannon had a, had a deep and, and uh, serious interest in identification with, with this school of thought, but that elsewhere in the world, um, people in similar roles as the one that he had in the Trump White House were also following traditionalism. Um, in Brazil, for example, I'll start there because Brazil's in the news these days. Yeah. Um, Bolsonaro has an advisor, an unofficial advisor. He's often referred to as a guru named Olavo de Carvalho. Um, and he lives in Virginia. That's a long story. He's exiled from Brazil. but um, And more so than Bannon, uh, Carvalho was actually initiated into organized religious groupings surrounding traditionalism. Um, he, he ran a Sufi tariqa in Sao Paulo. Um, this is the same, same figure who later would become, in the eyes of a lot of people, just a, 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 a firebrand Islamophobe, of course. Um, but, uh, but he ran a, a Sufi Islamic tariqa uh, inspired by his readings of traditionalism. And, and today he has a wing of the, of the Bolsonaro government uh, a quite influential ring, uh, you know, cir- circulating around the foreign minister of people who also read traditionalism and in varying ways and to varying degrees would endorse it. So an example there of the influence. And then there's this Russian man named Alexander Dugin. Dugin is a complicated figure. Officially, he is a philosopher and he's never held an official role in Russia's government. But he is a longtime public intellectual in Russia, and he he participated in a number of ways in the formulation of a new Russian foreign policy after the fall of the Soviet Union. In particular, a text that he wrote, Foundations of Geopolitics, was uh, was instrumental in training a generation of military leaders. And he is also a devout, devout traditionalist. And does he have a lot of influence? What would you, how would you quantify it? Oh, you can't quantify it. As, as is the case with all these figures, it's soft power. Um, when I hear somebody say Dugan is the mastermind of, of Putin, that's, that's wrong. But equally, when you hear somebody say that this, this guy is just a blowhard who has no power in Russia, that, that too is wrong. He, uh, he pops up in places. He, he appeared as a mediator, for example, between Russia and Turkey after uh, the downing of a plane in the Syrian oh, war. Yes. Um, he was a negotiator between Moscow and Chechnya. Um, he uh, he also has showed up in, in conflicts in Georgia and Ukraine, and his and his media output is massive in certain circles. Okay, so a picture there of the role that traditionalism, capital T, plays abroad. Uh, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Benjamin Teitelbaum is our guest from CU. His new book is called War for Eternity, Inside Steve Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. Uh, what stands out from your meetings with Steve Bannon? I was shocked initially um, by the depth of his reading. 
I've, I've heard him, I think I respond in the way a lot of people do to hearing some of his interviews when I've heard him be somewhat of a, a, a BS artist, if, <laughs> to use a, a colloquial term. Um, and once I finally got him to start talking more about these sources, about Julius Evola, about René Gounon, an earlier traditionalist, um, I, was, I was genuinely blown away with how deeply had, he had read, how many names he could drop, how many books he was familiar with. Um, but it was also surprising as, as our meetings went on how much he divulged to me. Um, one of the big reveals in my book is that the figure I was just talking about, Alexander Dugan, uh, this virulent anti-American, anti, uh, anti-liberal, anti-modern ideologue, uh, Steve Bannon has been meeting with him. Um, they had a secret private meeting in Rome in 2018 in November. That's after he leaves the administration, this is, I'll say. This is after Steve Bannon leaves the administration. This is while the Mueller investigation is raging and people are falling to it in the United States. Um, Steve nonetheless met with him in Rome and they discussed ways to try and unite their their two countries, essentially, um, and using traditionalism as the sort of bridge between between the two of them. Uh, I was I was absolutely shocked when he shared that with me. Is traditionalism, for lack of a better term, viable? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, personally, but it, and I say that not just based on the whims of my of my impressions. I think as as you look at the the activities of these three figures, and also there was an earlier case study in Hungary, uh, an extreme far right party called Jobbik. Was was essentially a traditionalist party as well. It fell apart as as you might notice when I'm talking about traditionalism. It's very vague. It speaks in grand terms. It doesn't have a clear role for an activist or a politician. And sometimes it's contradictory. That's one sense I got from reading your book. It it can be in a number of different ways. I mean, and people disagree about what it means. So if you try and forge politics out of that, it's it's no surprise to me that the people themselves. Uh, struggle to get along with anybody else. It will not also subordinate itself to practicality, which is a major problem. Just briefly, at the beginning of the book, you state clearly you're not a journalist by trade. You're an ethnographer, quote, where scholars observe, interact with, and sometimes live among the people they study, and that a central goal is empathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in a, the last few seconds, did you develop empathy? No. Um, it this, as I write in the book, this wasn't a proper ethnography. I, I strive to do it. It's very hard to do ethnography in the way that I've been trained with people at that level of power. Um, you need some sort of equality in the relationship between the two of you. But I, I hope that I succeeded or came some distance in trying to understand myself and relaying to readers exactly how they see the world and exactly how they understand history. Has Steve Bannon read the book, do you know? Not as far as I know. Not as far as you know. He's reviewed his quotes in it. Okay. Ben, thanks so much for being with us. A pleasure, Ryan. Benjamin Teitelbaum, assistant professor at CU Boulder. He's written War for Eternity inside Steve Bannon's far-right circle of global power brokers. It's the result of his many interviews with the former Trump presidential advisor. And we'll be right back with how the pandemic is reshaping transportation in Colorado and how it's not. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it? 
keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and this is Willie Nelson. We need to end the federal ban on cannabis. On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. What is the future of transportation in Colorado as the pandemic wears on? Some roads are filling back up across the state, while in Metro Denver, low ridership and shot budgets at RTD add up to a moment of reckoning. CPR transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner joins us. Hi, Nate. Hey, Ryan. We know that RTD ridership fell off a cliff back in April. Uh, Where do things stand now? Well, it's still way off, about 70% across the entire system. But when you drill down a little bit more, it gets really interesting. Uh, For instance, ridership on RTD's trains is still very minimal, very low. But let's think about where those trains go, from the suburbs into downtown Denver for the most part. And we know that a lot of the people on those trains are white-collar workers commuting uh, to downtown like me. Uh, But with the economy in tatters, so many office workers are working remotely, again, like me. Uh, And it just kind of makes sense why people aren't coming back to those trains. Okay. But are there places where ridership is holding somewhat steady? Yes, there are on on certain bus lines. So like the main bus lines down Colfax, the the 15 and the 16, uh, the zero down Broadway. um, There's some lines in Aurora, in Commerce City. Um, In some cases, RTDs actually had to add more service than is normal because so many people are trying to ride and RTD is trying to give people space to keep you know socially distant. Ah, that is, if buses have to be emptier for social distance, you might need more of them. Uh, what stands out about the areas that those buses serve? Well, if you look at them on a map, they line up very well with what RTD calls equity communities. Basically, minority communities, low-income neighborhoods, households with no, no cars, uh, students, elderly populations. Uh, here's Bruce Abel with RTD. And this really seems to imply to us that these are the areas where essential workers reside and they have continued to use transit to get to their jobs. Right. So in a nutshell, people who need RTD are still using it. What are the implications of that? Well, it's causing a discussion about who RTD needs to serve. Even before the coronavirus hit, RTD had these really big budget problems. And that goes back to this ongoing expansion for the last eight years or so. RTD was expanding service faster than its revenues. So the the CFO has called it unsustainable growth. And that put them in a this really bad position. Um, even before coronavirus, they were planning to make service cuts. Yeah, I remember your stories about that. Yes. But I suppose coronavirus has made that much worse. So much worse. And it's not yet clear exactly how big the cuts will need to be. But before the pandemic, they were already talking about nearly 10% of service. It'll probably be somewhere between 15 and 30%. Uh, compared to pre-pandemic levels. And that's huge. When you're talking about cuts that big, you really need to think hard about where to run the buses that you can still afford. So what's happening now at RTD is staff are pushing the board uh, to focus on these high-need areas, the same places where ridership is still holding up. Right, with those essential workers, Mm -hmm. as you've said. But what about all of the other areas? 
Well, they're they're not happy. Uh, to be clear, nothing's been decided yet, right? This is going to happen over the next few months. Uh, but let's look at Boulder County. Um, they're they're ticked off that RTD still can't afford to build the the commuter rail train that they promised 15 years ago. They still have these big climate goals that include getting drivers out of their cars and onto public transit. And so the thought of cutting service or uh, you know requiring a, a Boulder County to pay extra to keep service that's not very appealing. But is there a need for more service in those places? Uh, it depends on who you are. If you rely on it and you use one of those popular bus lines, then yes, absolutely, there's a there's a need for more service. But outside of that, probably not in the short term. Um, coronavirus cases are ticking back up here. Office space is emptying out as people keep working from home. But, you know, let's think forward a little bit. What happens when the treatment for coronavirus gets better and maybe people feel more conf- confident going back to work? If you work in the suburbs, you'll probably just drive, and for the most part, that's fine. But what if you work downtown? It isn't physically possible for every downtown worker to drive. Something like 40% took transit before the pandemic, and so downtown was built that way to accommodate that. There just aren't enough parking garages to hold everyone's cars. What's the upshot here, Nate Miner? How's RTD going to figure this out? They might get lucky. They might get another big federal bailout. They got about a quarter billion dollars um, earlier this year. Or maybe that people will keep telecommuting and they won't need to restore as much service. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they'll become a strictly regional provider, you know, focusing on the like the, the popular bus to Boulder, um, the, the trains, the sort of long haul stuff. And that would mean local governments need to step in and run their own transit service. And if that happens, like, that would be a huge crack-up of RTD. I mean, it's been the main transit service provider for 50 years here. And that conversation's actually starting to happen at the board level. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, NCPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner joins us with a check-in on transportation in Colorado in the coronavirus era. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago about driving. What do we know about how many people are using the roads right now? It depends on where you look. Um, so much depends, Ryan. Uh, it it nearly uh, it's back to normal on roads like I seventy up in the mountains at the Eisenhower Tunnel, five fifty in Montrose, one sixty out of Durango. Pretty much back to normal or close to it. Okay. I think that means people are getting out and having fun and, and recreating. But in the metro area, commuter-heavy roads like I-225, US-36, up toward Boulder, traffic is still way down, uh, like almost a third off. And I think you can probably safely attribute that to so many people working from home. I want to ask a bigger question about climate change here, because, of Mm -hmm. course, there's the fight against climate change on the state level in a city like Denver. And the emphasis is is, is get, on getting people out of their cars. You know, so how, how do you think COVID-19 plays into that? I think it's, it's making it a, a lot harder. Um, transportation accounts for about a third of all CO2 emissions in the state. So bringing that down is super important. But so much of Colorado was built out around the car. It's a very sprawling area for the most part. Uh, So generally, cars give you more access to different jobs and more economic opportunities, right? So asking someone to give up their car is is a tough sell. There are two main ways to change that. Uh, Better mobility options, so more bike lanes, more transit. And then the second thing is more density, so you don't have to travel as far to get to places. But density in some ways is 
at odds with the idea of distancing in a pandemic. Just briefly, what about travel around the state? What might we see there? Well, the biggest thing I'm keeping my eyes on right now is CDOT's plan for a front-range passenger rail system. Oh. Uh, this would go from uh, anywhere from Cheyenne to Pueblo or Trinidad or even down in, into New Mexico. They're, they're still working on that. Um, very much in the planning phases. But there's a few interesting developments recently. One is House Democrats um, are running a bill right now that would give Amtrak a lot of new money to expand across the country. Amtrak says the front range is a top priority. So that's interesting. Uh, separately, our Republican Senator Cory Gardner says he's trying to get some money, like $2 billion for front range rail in the next federal stimulus bill. So keep your eye on that, too. As I know you will. Thanks so much, Nate. You're welcome. CPR's transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner. And finally today, our colleagues at Indy 1023 feature Colorado artists each month as part of the local 303. One of the musicians for July is Joseph Lamar. But more important than anything, the whole lot of people who can't get in. Welcome to paradise, welcome to hell. What's the real difference? No one can tell. Take what you want of that which don't fill. Heaven is plastic, nothing is real. This is Paradise One, a track Lamar released ahead of his concept album called Sin Act One. It'll be the first in a trilogy. On his website, Lamar writes that he unites the cerebral, the visceral, the secular, and the spiritual, the micro and the macro, creating a multiverse one album at a time. Colorado Springs musician Joseph Lamar, Indie 1023, chose him as a local 303 artist this month. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters.